Bibles, turn to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. Beginning in verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation. The glorious deeds of the Lord in His might and the wonders that He has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God. And not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. And they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to His law. They forgot His works and the wonders that He had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they still sinned, still more against Him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that the water gushed out, and streams overflowed. Can He also give bread or provide meat for His people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven. And he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he let out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp, all around their dwellings, and they ate and were filled, for he gave them what they craved. But before they were satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, The anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, 
They did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath, and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up his, all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe. When he performed his signs in Egypt and the, his marvels in the fields of Zoan, he turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locust and the fruit of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hell and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hell and their flocks to the thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the firstfruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. Then he let out his people like sheep, and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. He drove out nations before them. He apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God, and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath, and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he had dwelt among the mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword, invented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured the young, their young men, and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine. And he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah. Mount Zion, which he loves, he built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from flowing the nursing, following the nursing ewes. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand.
This is God's Word. And this is God's Word of God's history with His people. The entire purpose of this psalm is for the purpose of teaching us what God has done in redemption for His people. In fact, we are told that beginning in verse 1. And the first verse, eight verses really set the tone for all that follows it. And while it, it would be really worth our time and edifying to go through this much um, slower than we're going to go tonight, I think to keep it to all, all together is actually to see it in the psalmist's intent and God's intent and how we're supposed to read it, is that we read this history lest we forget. We read this history as an example of what God has done in redeeming a people that would just reject Him. And this is for that purpose of instruction. It begins in, in verse 1 of this is, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. So in other words, what we're reading here is for the purpose of learning and for teaching us. And so when we come to this psalm, we have to remember that, that this is for that purpose of education. And specifically... We are to learn of what God has done amongst His people for verse 4. Verse 4 captures what we are responsible to do. We will not hide them from their children. And specifically, what is it that we will not hide? The words of my mouth. The words of God's mouth we will not hide from their children. But rather, what we won't do is we won't hide, but we will tell to the coming generation. What will we tell? The glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. Again, this purpose of what we are supposed to do in verse 6, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. There's this, this teaching that's supposed to, to go from generation to generation. And there's a purpose in this in verse 7, which is a, a salvation, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments, that they should not be like their fathers, which were a rebellious, stubborn generation whose heart was not steadfast upon God. So the entire purpose of this psalm is to we learn then to share that with the next generation. Now I just want you to consider this for a second in verse 4. It says we will not hide them from their children. I like the NSAB where it says that they, they would conceal it. We will not conceal it. <clears throat> How do we conceal the gospel? I thought of just two basic ways. The first is obvious, is not sharing the gospel. And this is in the context, you think of it in this sense, this is in the context of what we would do in our family. And so the first way that we could conceal the gospel is just simply by not sharing on a regular basis the truths of the gospel. And, and I say this regularly as the key to what it means to share with the next generation. 
It's not that we once a week or every so often share with the next generation the glorious truths of Jesus Christ, but it is rather every opportunity that we have. You consider the opportunities that we have whenever there's a stub toe. I know that that hurts now, but there's a glorious inheritance waiting for you where you will never stub your toe. As silly as that may sound, every opportunity that we can use to point the coming generation forward to the celestial city, we ought to take it. And there's a second way that we can conceal the gospel, and that is this way, and I think this is the most detrimental, is undermining what we say by what we do. And and what do I mean by that? Let me give you an example. The priest Eli and his wicked sons. And we see that God told Eli, you, your, your family is going to be wiped out because of the wickedness of your sons. You need to tell them to stop. And you think you have a perception, somewhat of a perception, that Eli was a good guy because publicly he was the priest. Publicly he was ministering to the people. But when you get to the end of his life, what do you find out? He's obese. What does that have to do with anything? Well, what was his sons guilty of? Taking from the sacrifices and feeding themselves on it. Where did they learn that from? So we can, we can proclaim the gospel. We can put the smiles on. But, but do we undermine what we cling to with our mouths by how we live? And so rather than not conceal it, there's this positive declaration we are called to give of what God has done. What has God done? He has rescued His people that are in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is so that they should set their hope in God. Now, let the weight of that the purpose of that, let us fill that weight for a second. If, if the next generation does not set their hope in God, what are they going to set it in? What will they set it in? They will set it in their greatest desires. And they will set it in the greatest desires that they will follow. And their greatest desires is the path of destruction. So there's two paths before us in which we share our children. You, You can conceal or undermine or you proactively share and, and you, you show them the, 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 the short, the small path, the narrow path, or you show them the path of destruction. Because that's what they're going to set their hope in. They will set their hope in something. You and I will set our hope in something, but what will we set our hope in? He goes on to give examples now of Israel's history. Now, when you read this history, it it, it seems out of order uh, because at one moment you're in the wilderness and then you go backwards and now you're in the Exodus 
And then you go back into the wilderness and then you're in Jerusalem. It's hard to follow. We shouldn't read this as a chronological order of the history, but simply in God's wisdom, he gives us little little sequences of his history with Israel. And he begins in verse 9 with the Ephraimites armed with the bow turned back on the day of, of battle. What is, the, what is the point of this? Is that they had all the advantages of war. They had all the things that they needed to be successful. They just needed to trust in God when God sends them into the battlefield. But what do they do? They fell back in fear. They did not trust in God. And now look at the list of offenses that come with that in the following verses. They did not keep the covenant, which is to say that they actually broke the covenant with God by this turning back in fear, by not trusting in the Lord your God. They broke His covenant. They refused to follow His law. And so they rebelled against God. God says, this is how you're to live, and they decided to live according to their own desires. They decided to live according to the path of destruction. They ignored what God had done for them. They just completely forgot about it. Now when we think about this idea that they forgot about, and this, this is the theme throughout this, is they forget what God has done, but God, but God does these things. Now it's not that they actually had forgotten. I mean, when, when you sin, did you really forget that Christ died on the cross and, and took your sin upon the cross for you? No, but you kind of do forget it, right? So it's not that they, they, they forgot what God had done. This is a way of saying that, that, that they are unmindful or to be unmindful of what God has done and to, to shove it out of our mind and not to bring it to our mind. That's what it means that they forgot. Now we go back to verse 4, as we will not hide it from their children, but tell to the coming generation, that word tell, but to tell to the coming generation is the idea of ongoing, repeatedly saying what God had done, lest they forget. If you're telling the next generation, what does that mean? Where's your mind at? Your mind does on that which you are telling. Psalmist then gives the example of the Exodus in verses 12 through 31. And so he for a moment takes us to the, to the miracle of what, what takes place in the, in the Exodus. That he divides the Red Sea. He makes the water stand like a heap. He leads them by a cloud in the day and leads them by a pillar of fire at night. That he gave them drink in a place with no water. It's a statement, really, verses 12 through 16, of of God's kindness, an example of his leading his people, that providing all of their needs for them. That he splits the Red Sea. And what was their response to that? 
This is what makes this psalm so shocking, is to read it so in such a condensed sense. Because when you read the story in Exodus, what you read is the celebratory nature that, that is the response of the Israelites, and then it's like there's a space of time, and then they sin. But the psalmist doesn't put it like that. The psalmist actually puts it in this sense that God splits the Red Sea, gives them water, and they're sinning. It's like, it's like they just never stop sinning. It says, yet they still, they sin still more against him. Rebelling against the Most High in the desert. And that's the shocking aspect of it. In fact, as we're, we're reading it, we should be reading verses 12 through 13, uh, 16 with excitement and wonder and amazement of God's kindness, of God's compassion. And then when we get to verse 17, we should be saying, what is happening here? Yet they still sinned more? They remained hard in heart. They tested God. Can God spread a table in the wilderness? The audacity of them. Notice in verse 20. He struck the rock so that the water gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he also give bread to provide meat for, or provide meat for his people? God had given them rescue from bondage of slavery in Egypt. Rescues them through the Red Sea. Gives them water. Gives them manna. And then they say, this is not enough. We want meat. In Egypt, we had meat. We had all of that wonderful food in Egypt. And so they want more. What is God's response to this? Verse 21. Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Why did Israel continually sin? Well, verse 22 tells us. Why did they not keep the covenant? Because they did not believe in God. Though they had seen visible manifestations of God in theophany, though they had seen miracles, they did not believe in God. His wrath is displayed upon them. He pours out his wrath, and still, they did not believe in God. They did not trust in his salvation, which is to say, they did not have faith. The faithfulness to follow God, to follow his laws, would have poured forth from a, a heart that had expressed faith. They didn't have it. It's perplexing that they see this, but yet sin. Then look at verse 23. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he ran, rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. What a wonderful God we have that feeds a people that don't believe in him. Here's the reality. There's no one that eats a thing today that's apart from God's sovereign goodness and his common grace to all mankind. They just did not recognize it in this supernatural way. But it's incredible how the psalm 
shows us God's unquestionable sovereignty over nature and overriding nature itself to command the winds, to send birds that are described as being the sand of the seas for hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people to where they got sick eating it. And that's what it says in verse 29, and they ate and were well filled. In fact, it was, you read in Numbers, that it will come out of their nostrils because they tested God. And why did he do this? Well, verse 29 tells us something that we ought to pay attention to. For he gave them what they craved. Another translation says he gave them what they desired. You know, we ask the Lord to give us the desires of the heart. And what that means is this, is that we ask God to give us our desires so that our desires would be his desires. But when our desires are not his desires, be careful for asking what you desire. Because he might just give it to you where it comes out your nose. Because that's what he does with these people. Spurgeon says this he, in, in his comment that he's giving them over to the desires of the flesh. Spurgeon says, Oh my God, deny me my most urgent prayers sooner than answer them in displeasure. Better hunger and thirst after righteousness than to be well filled with sin's dainties. The God gave them that. And before they had even finished eating, while the food was still in their mouths. Verse 31, the Lord sends his wrath upon them. Listen to the language. The anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. In other places, or in other translations, it speaks of the, the, the strongest men that are taken out. The best of Israel. God takes out. What should their response be in all of this? You look at this as not only has God's provision been a testimony to him, but his wrath was. That's the testimony. That's the sayings. That's the words of God's mouth. In verse 32, it just tells us, yet in spite of all of this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So how we think that they should respond is not how they respond. We would think that they would respond with praise. But rather, they don't. So it continues to say how he, he, he makes their days vanish. They're just a mist. And he wipes them out. Verse 36. But they flattered him with their mouths. This is after it says that they, they remembered God. And so you can think back in Israel's history. How many times did they say, we will do all that you say. We will do all of the laws written in this book. We will follow you with a full heart. Well, the, the psalmist tells us what that was as they flattered him with their mouths. Flattery is not a good thing. It's, it's really lying. 
And that's why the parallel, they lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Why? Because they did not believe. Because they did not believe. But yet, verse 38 is the most surprising thing. Yet, he... Now, there's a contrast here, I think, in verse 38 that we have to, to notice because we've already seen this is when God does all of these things, then the text will say, yet they still sinned. Verse 32, in spite of all this, they yet still sinned. But then we see this wonderful truth, yet he, God, God's not like them. God's not unfaithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. In other words, he was merciful to them. He showed them mercy. And as we have read the text, did, did they deserve that? No, they deserved the fullness of his wrath. But yet God being merciful, God being slow to anger, God being unchanged by these sinful people shows mercy. And he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. Another contrast. You see the power of God in controlling the winds, and we're just a wind that passes. You see that God is infinite and eternal, but we're just flesh. We're dust. And he remembers this, it says, not that God remembers anything, but it's to say that God acts on behalf of his people. Whereas God remembered, we go into verses 40 to 42 and we see they don't remember. They don't remember his power. They don't remember the day he redeemed them. They tested him. They provoked him. They rebelled against him. They grieved him. That's just all in those three verses of what they did to this God that's compassionate and atoned for their iniquity that fed them and then led them out of slavery. He recounts what he did for them in Egypt. In verses 43 through 51, it's the plagues that destroyed an entire nation, the swarms of flies, the frogs, the crops from the locust, the vines, the sycamores with frost, the hail, the thunderbolts, his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress with the destroying angels that took out the firstborn in, in, in Egypt, the first fruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. The Egyptians were descendants of Noah's son Ham, the ones that would be subservient to the tents of Shem. They see all that God did in removing them from Egypt. The Exodus is the single greatest event in the Old Testament. The whole entire Exodus event 
is the prototype of all that follows afterwards of what God does for his people. Fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, who goes through the desert for his people. But look what happens in verse 52. But. Verse 52. But he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. His people noticed that. That's that they were chosen of God for his purposes. Not only does God say that you're mine, but he then proves that he was their God and that they were his people. And the the, the language here is that he leads them to safety so that they would have no concerns. What What does it tell us that they did? What is it that they do? Look at verse 54. He brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which was his right hand had won. How does he do this? He drives out nations before them. He appointed them for a possession. This is moving in Israel's history now into Jerusalem. Settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. But what? Verse 56. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They provoked him to anger with their high places. Instead of worshiping God in the place that God had pointed out for them to worship, rather they, they, they set up high places, they have graven images, they have idols, and they worship them. And they continually reject God, driving and moving God to jealousy. So that when God heard, he was full of wrath. And he utterly rejected Israel. So what does God do? He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. Now you think about what Israel oftentimes trusted in. They would trust in the tabernacle. They would trust in the temple. What does God do? He removes it. They trusted in the ark. Look what it says in verse 61. And delivered his power to captivity. That is the deliverance of the ark over to the enemies. He himself ordains the capture of their lucky rabbit's foot. But not only that, you continue to look. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men, and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword. The people that were meant to bring the presence of God to the people through the sacrificial system, God removes. He takes them out. Now as you read this, the weight of it is heavy. But look at how God fulfills promises. Verse 65. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine. You get the imagery. One that has a 
a, a little bit of extra courage and is quick to rush because of the influences of wine. That's the picture here of our God rushing for his people, full of confidence. And he put his adversaries to rout, and he put them to everlasting shame. This is what God then does for his people. And then we get to the glorious truths of the gospel. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. Just as what was promised to Jacob, or Jacob promised to his sons, is that the scepter shall never depart from Judah. He built a sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which he has founded forever. And this is God now building a temple through David and Solomon. He chose David his servant. He chose David. This is so incredibly important to understand the phrase that he chose David. I recently heard someone ask this question, and I agreed with their answer, was what what is the most important aspect of the book of Ruth? What is the most important single most important thing in the book of Ruth? It's this. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. That's what the book of Ruth is about. Is the genealogy of David. And so when we read this psalm and we see the treachery of Israel and the wrath Israel deserves in the midst of that God sends his shepherd David the anointed one the psalmist of Israel and look what David does he took him from the sheepfolds why because David was a shepherd and what was David doing as a shepherd he was learning to shepherd And God gives the people of Jacob to David. Verse 72, it tells us this, With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. David was the faithful king. He walked with integrity and cared for the sheep. This is the culmination of Israel's history culminating in David. And after David, it takes a nosedive, except for a king here and a king there. And the whole time, after David's passing, what is every single king looking to? They're looking back in their comparison to who? David. And they recognize we're not like David, our father. Then you think of David. 
And David was a sinful king. But he was the best king that Israel had. And the culmination of Israel's history in this psalm is that in culminating in David. And why is that? Well, let's go back to verse 5. Is this. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach their children. Now just think about this for a second. What is this testimony from the point of the psalmist? What is that testimony? Is it not the unfolding plan of God's redemption for his people? That culminates in the promise of the scepter being given over to Judah in an everlasting way? You see, part of not forgetting God seems to be the continual proclamation of what he had done. But what did we see of Israel? They continually forgot. This psalm doesn't end in the Old Testament, but it actually it ends in the New Testament. If you turn to Matthew chapter 13, and you look at verse 3, Jesus tells the par- is telling several parables. And he begins by telling the parable of the seeds. It says, And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun arose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some... 60, some 30. Listen to what Jesus says. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, then the disciples ask Jesus, why, why do you speak in parables? And he, he says this to them. He gives them this answer in verse 17. For truly I say to you, many prophets and and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see and to hear what you hear and did not hear. Jesus then gives an explanation from this parable in verse 18. I want you to notice the words of this parable and how Jesus answers it in explaining it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one, here it is, who hears the word, but cares for the world, and the deceitfulness of the riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word, 
and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. What's the key to this parable that Jesus gives? Is that he hears the word and understands it. What does this have to do with Psalm 78? Well, after Jesus finishes the parables, look at verse 34. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And what does Jesus quote? Psalm 78, verse 2. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Jesus actually fulfills the psalmist. And it's amazing that when Jesus describes the kingdom prior to this, he describes it as a mustard seed. What do we know about the mustard seed? That it starts small, but grows and blossom into the largest of the trees of the garden. What is our mission? To continue to do what Asaph taught. To continue to do what Jesus fulfilled. Is recounting God's history of redemption. And us seeing it as vitally necessary for future generations lest they forget and turn to rebellion against God. And it shows us that despite the wonders and miracles that people crave for, unless they hear the word of God, there is no change of heart. Unless the word of God is brought to the next generation, the greatest signs will fall on death ears. And you know what the glorious truths of the new covenant are? Is that they will know God. No longer will they have to teach their neighbor know the Lord because they will know the Lord. There's no falling out of the new covenant as there was a falling out of the old covenant. Because the new covenant has been fulfilled by Christ. And if you are in Christ, You are part of that covenant. You know the Lord in your heart. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious truths of the gospel. May it ever be upon our lips to proclaim and recount the wondrous deeds that you have done for us in your people, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we never forget to share how Christ came how he assumed humanity, how he died upon the cross and rose triumphantly again. May we never cease in sharing this. May we never cease in thinking about it, meditating upon it, and living our lives in light of what Christ has done for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's take our hymns of grace and turn to hymn 177 in Christ alone.